Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Vengeance of Martin Brand, the classic space opera, written by Raymond A. Palmer. A superior space opera far ahead of its time. From the hallowed pages of Amazing Stories in 1942, here is the first of the adult space operas. Written by the legendary and highly controversial science fiction editor Raymond A. Palmer, The Vengeance of Martin Brand has never before appeared in any audiobook edition. In this book, Palmer took a giant stride forward from his contemporaries, replacing the noble, uncomplicated heroes of the first space operas with the tormented anti-hero, Suicide Martin Brand, one of science fiction's most memorable characters. The half-crazed Brand, who likes to play classical music while rocketing toward a half-dozen enemy ships, atomic cannons blasting, is Earth's only hope. The embittered former spy for the Interplanetary Patrol is the only one who knows about the Martian spaceships waiting in the hidden cavern on the moon. It would be easy to make himself the most powerful man in the system and become its master. But to warn Earth, Brand would have to forsake vengeance on the man who betrayed him and cost him everything he held dear, then survive two women, one who has sworn to kill him and one who has sworn to arrest him dead or alive. And if he made it that far, he'd have to fight his way to the surface through 10,000 Martians. But that's why they call him Suicide Martin Brand. And even if he does succeed in warning Earth, war will flare across three worlds. From its advanced flashback-within-a-flashback technique to the adult passions and emotions of the characters, The Vengeance of Martin Brand is superior space opera far ahead of its time. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from The Vengeance of Martin Brand. Chapter 1 it's a crazy thing, Kathleen, Hal Orson said in a savage whisper. Worse still, it can only hurt you. He's dead. Why open up old wounds? You'll break your heart. It's already broken, Kathleen Dennis said in a tight, strained voice. It broke the day they took him away, condemned as a traitor, and I believed it until you told me the truth. Orson stopped in the darkness and grasped her arm. Kathy, please don't do it. You don't know how much trouble you can get into if you're caught at this mad scheme. You couldn't possibly explain why you did it. Orson pulled her around until she faced him in the gloom of the tomb's interior. Just why are you doing it? He insisted. Why? For the life of me, I can't understand. Why did you agree to come along in the first place? She whispered fiercely. He tried to see her face in the gloom, but it was only a pale oval, and for an instant he thought he saw something glistening, as though there were tears on her cheeks reflecting little glints of light from some unseen source. He lifted one hand and brushed his fingers across her velvet skin. They came away wet. He shook his head in irritation because I was his best friend, or as good a friend as he'd let anybody be, and because he fumbled for words, but the wetness on his fingers strangled them in his throat. To say more 
would only hurt her worse. Because you felt there was a possibility that I might be right, she finished for him. That he might not be. Kathy, he begged. Don't say it. You'll break yourself up. Because I'm crying? She asked defiantly. Hal, discovering that he really is dead can't hurt me half as much as the torture of not knowing. And as long as this doubt gnaws at me, I'll be a river of pain, damned forever from the sea. That dam will break if I don't relieve the pressure. Then let me look, he exclaimed. There's no use in burning such a ghastly picture into your mind. Don't be afraid of that, she said. For eleven years I've burned a picture of him into my mind. Ten years while I worshipped him from a distance, and once since I told him I loved him. No other picture can replace that one. I can take it, Hal. I'm no baby. You're crying like one, he said, and regretted the words instantly. I'm sorry, Kathy. I didn't mean that. I'm a fool. His voice broke, and he stopped speaking. She reached out and touched her cool fingers to his face. He stood still while they explored. He didn't flinch when she found the wetness. Hal, she said, you're good. Too good to get into trouble because of me. Go now, Hal. I'll finish the job alone. He hefted the crowbar in his left hand. No, he said roughly. I'm going to take this tomb apart stone for stone, and if he's in there, I'm going to take the Capitol building apart right afterward. He strode on the gloom of the marble monument to seek the hero whose real heroism had never been told, whose life had been forfeited by the cowardice of a nation's government. Kathleen followed behind him, clutching his right hand with her left. They reached the rail around the sunken marble mausoleum, and Orson halted. Over you go, he whispered. I'll let you down, and you can drop the last foot or so. It's only eight feet. He put down the crowbar, and it clanged loudly against the floor. Kathleen clambered over the rail. He grasped both her wrists and lowered her gently, leaning over as far as he could. Then, with a whispered warning, he released his grip. He heard her soft sandals slap against the floor and knew that she hadn't lost her balance. Here I come, he said, picking up the crowbar. In an instant, he stood beside her in the gloom and fumbled in his pocket for the black light spectacles necessary to give them vision. She put on a pair, and as he donned his, she snapped on the black light flash. Without the glasses, nothing would have been visible at all in the impenetrable darkness. An eerie reddish glow seemed to fill the chamber. He turned to look at her. She stood stiffly, staring at the huge marble coffin in the center of the circular floor. Even in the weird light, he could see that her face was starkly white. He clenched his fist so tightly that the nails bit into his palm and turned almost savagely toward the coffin. She held the light while he placed the crowbar against the thin crack that marked the lid. The slab was tremendously heavy, but by fractional inches, he forced the thin edge of the bar beneath it until enough of it was under the slab to give leverage. 
His first heave moved the slab not more than an inch. He tried it again, and once more he moved the slab a tiny bit. Can you do it? Kathleen asked anxiously. It's a cinch you alone couldn't have, he grunted. I'd have smashed it, she said simply. If it took me all night, I don't think anyone outside could hear what went on in here. It's almost soundproof. I hope so, he said, inching the bar under the slab once more. It looks as though we'll be making plenty of noise before I get this off. Ten sweating minutes later, the slab had moved enough to show a thin, black line of the interior of the outer coffin. Orson thrust the crowbar into it with a mighty heave. The muscles in his shoulders bunched as he strained against the bar. Then the lid slid aside as though it were greased and fell with a thunderous crash to the floor. The echoes were deafening in the vaulted chamber. Then silence came once more. They waited almost a full minute, listening for the sound of running footsteps for an alarm, but no further sound came other than their hoarse breathing. Kathleen thrust the light over the edge of the sarcophagus. The coffin, she gasped. It's there. Of course, he said almost savagely. It would be, and it's going to be a devil of a job to open it. It's metal and it'll be bolted shut. I only hope the wrenches I've brought will fit. He tried them one by one, then grunted as he found one that worked. He began loosening the first bolt. An hour later, he sank back, his hands bleeding. There, that's the last one, he gasped. But I'll have to rest a moment. I haven't got the strength to lift that cover. Kathleen laid the flash on the floor and leaned over the coffin. Kathy, said Orson sharply. Don't. But with one superhuman heave, she lifted the metal cover. It came crashing aside, ringing as though a thousand gongs had been clashed together. Orson clapped his hands over his ears, then took them off. He looked at Kathleen, who was peering into the coffin. Suddenly, she screamed. Again and again, she screamed. Ear-piercing shrieks that penetrated his eardrums with more intensity than had the noise of the metal coffin lid. He leapt forward, grasped her in his arms, and pulled her away from the coffin. Kathy, come away. Don't look anymore. Her screams stopped, and she whirled on him, sobbing shrilly. Hal, he's... He's not there. He's not there. Don't you understand? He's alive. He's not dead at all. He's alive. The coffin's empty. Oh, God, said Hal Orson, folding her trembling body into his arms. Oh, God. As he stood there holding the sobbing girl tightly, his mind went back to that memorable day when the luck of suicide Martin Brand had become almost a legend with the Interplanetary Patrol. They had heard it all over his transmitter, which, in the heat of battle, he had forgotten to turn off. They had heard him screaming his defiance at his enemies while he plunged in for his suicidal attack against impossible odds, accompanied by the roar of Wagner's immortal die Valkyrie, 
dinning at them out of their loudspeakers from the music tape he habitually carried into battle with him. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The Vengeance of Martin Brand. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.